when I first got into it, I was like, why is there no timeline for this? And they're like, well, timelines aren't really helpful because, you know, women are different. I'm like, not timelines is really unhelpful. Like no timeline is the most unhelpful. Shooting from the hip is never a good strategy when it comes to taking care of somebody's body. No. And so I, yeah, again, I got super, super frustrated because I'm always thinking about, okay, practically, how can we apply this? Like, how does this actually going to work in the real world? And it's like, cool, we can give people a timeline and then just give them all the caveats or all of the, you know, considerations to keep in mind so that they can be on the lookout for them and they can adjust the timeline accordingly. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joining the line later today by Molly Galbraith. Now, normally I would do the whole week that was, what's new in my neck of the woods, but man, let's be honest, this is just grind time right now. Uh, I would like to say that there's all this new and exciting stuff, but if you've ever run a business or just live life for an extended period of time, you know, sometimes there's nothing really exciting or new going on. It's just more of the same. And it's those little wins that you're hoping to pick up over time that accumulate and get you to where you want to go. So, you know, athletes are, are wrapping up their training. That's finishing up. Got a weekend off from soccer with the holiday weekend plugging away on the new space, excited to get in there. So, you know, again, rather than just sitting here and rambling on and on, I figure, let me make this short and sweet. We'll take a quick break and then we'll jump into this awesome new episode with Molly Galbraith. One thing Bill Hartman and I have talked about for years now is the power of mentorship. Early on, I didn't have a mentor to shape or guide me, or most importantly, help me find the blind spots in my own training and coaching. But luckily, after many years of trial and error, I found Bill, and my professional success exploded as a result. But the downside to the mentorship process, at least professionally, is that it can be pricey. For private mentees that I work with, it costs anywhere from $3.99 to $5.99 per month to work together. And while I know the results go far beyond that price, the fact of the matter is that just won't work for a lot of folks. So when Bill and I sat down a while back, we asked ourselves a really tough question. How can we help shape the future of the industry and truly make it great? And beyond that, how can we create amazing content yet make it affordable to virtually every trainer or coach out there? And the answer for us was simple. Restart iFast University. Here's what you'll get when you become a member of iFast University. One update each month from myself and Bill. This could cover anything from improving exercise technique to writing better programs and everything in between. Twice per month Q&As where Bill and I will personally answer your questions to help you become better at training, coaching, or even running your fitness business. A Facebook group where you will be surrounded by like-minded trainers and coaches who are serious about getting better, and access to the iFastU archives, where you'll be able to watch literally hundreds of pieces of content from the iFast team over the years. This blend of content and Q&A is specifically designed to help make you the best trainer or coach possible. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to ifastuniversity.com to get signed on. We'd love to have you on board. Molly Galbraith is the co-founder of Girls Gone Strong, the world's largest platform providing evidence-based, interdisciplinary health, fitness, nutrition, and pregnancy education for women and the health and fitness professionals who work with them, including industry-leading certification programs and coaching. She's also the creator of the GGS Academy, which houses those certifications and has students and grads in over 100 countries across the world. And most recently, Molly wrote a new book called Strong Women Lift Each Other Up. In this show, Molly and I take a deep dive into the world of training during and post-pregnancy. We dive into some of the specific things you can and cannot do during both of these phases, and we outline a plan to help your ladies come back fit and strong after giving birth. Not only was this a fascinating discussion, but Molly is a dear friend, somebody that I have known for many, many years, so it was just great to catch up with her and just hear her dive into this topic that she is so incredibly passionate about. But enough for me, let's do this. Molly, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to catch up with you. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, Mike, it's so good to see you. Been longtime friends and you've had a massive influence on my coaching and training career. So thank you so much for that. 
I'm Molly Galbraith. I'm co-founder and woman in charge of Girls Gone Strong. And Girls Gone Strong actually started 10 years ago this month. That's um, awesome. I know. And we started as a platform that just was dedicated to celebrating women and strength. There were a number of women who strength training had changed our lives. And we kind of wanted to preach that gospel to other women. And over the last 10 years, we have grown into the world's largest platform, providing evidence-based interdisciplinary health, fitness, nutrition, and pregnancy education for both women and the professionals who work with them. And we do that through our um, articles, our free courses, our coaching program for women, and our certifications for health and fitness professionals. Wow. Dang, that is a tidy little package right there. That sounds <laughs> great. Okay. So talk to me though, what led you to the world of physical preparation? Like how did you get started working out and doing all this stuff yourself? Yeah. So going on almost 18 years, which is hard to believe. <laughs> I was a, I think a junior in college and, you know, like a lot of people was unhappy with the way that I looked and the way that I felt. I was an active kid kind of off and on. I was a competitive gymnast for five years, which is hilarious. Cause I'm like almost five foot 11. <laughs> um, as I did that for five years. And then as a cheerleader for a couple of years in high school, end of high school, beginning of college, got really sedentary, gained quite a bit of weight. was like, I don't feel good in my body. So I hired a personal trainer worked with him for about six weeks, got some results, um, just but really fell in love with lifting and the gym. And about seven or eight months later, started dating a personal trainer, which was much more economical. Um, <laughs> some, poor college, some poor college student couldn't, couldn't afford a pay trainer, but yeah. he was a competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter. So I got thrust okay. into the world of intense exercise very quickly. Did my first powerlifting meet in 2005 competed in figure in 2006, seven and eight, and then did my next powerlifting meet in 2009. And it was shortly after that next powerlifting meet that I ended up coming to see you. And you're like, yeah. congratulations, you just deadlifted 341 pounds with your quads and your lower back. Um, <laughs> let's, let's get you some glutes and some hamstrings and a, right. and a core and see what, see what we could do. And so, yeah. Um, but after I kind of did all of that competing and stuff, I ended up being diagnosed with Hashimoto's, um, which is autoimmune thyroid disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a lot of people know as PCOS and some adrenal issues. And so, you know, I kind of went back and forth from this world of like really intense, extreme exercise to like rebounding and, you know, having these health issues and things like that. And, um, so then 2012 or 13, that's what kind of when I got to the point where I was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this yo-yoing of right. really intense crushing myself to rebounding and feeling really uncomfortable in my body. And so 2013, that was when I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to change my relationship with food and with exercise started exercising eventually for the joy of it because yeah. I really love it because I love the way it makes me feel, you know, I love feeling strong. I love being able to jump up in the gym and, you know, bang out pull-ups. I love being able to, you know, hike six or eight miles and, yeah. you know, not have it crush me. I love being able to, you know, pick up heavy things and just feel strong and capable. So I've done the really intense stuff. I've done a like, you know, gorge myself on food and, you know, not want to sure. move my body. And now I'm in this place of like, man, I, I am, moving and exercising and lifting um, in celebration of what my body can do. And, and because I really love it versus doing it as like punishment or trying to, you know, fit my body into this really particular mold of what I think it should look like. Right. You know, it's so interesting too, as we've all aged and I would hate to, I hate saying that because it makes me <laughs> feel old, but you know, just thinking about all of our evolutions, cause I had Eric Cressy on uh, a couple weeks ago and just seeing like where we all were, you know, and I guess that's kind of the benefit of youth. Like you feel bulletproof and you're like, oh, I'm going to lift the heaviest things possible. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but then seeing the evolution back to, okay, now I'm going to use my body as this vehicle to move great, feel great, educate others versus just like, I don't know, show it off. Right. And just show mm -hmm. like, look how awesome I am versus like, hey, man, this is a vehicle and it's the one that I get for the rest of my life. I'm going to take great care of it. So I love seeing that evolution in you too. Yeah, it has been. It's been huge. And, and, you know, for, I, I started working out because I hated my body and, you know, I had negative right. self-talk, you know, I didn't like the way that my body looked or felt. And I kept thinking that achieving the next thing would fix the way that I felt yeah. about my body. You know, yep. if I could, if I could just lose 10 more pounds, if I just had a six pack, if I could just deadlift 405, you know what I mean? Whatever that next kind of goal was, because at first it was related to the way that my body looked. And then when I got diagnosed with my autoimmune disease and 
PCOS and stuff, I was like, okay, well, if I can't be the really lean girl, I'm going to be the really strong girl. And that's when I switched my focus back to powerlifting. And I was like, okay, cool. If I can just bench this and I can just squat this and I can just deadlift (laughs) this, then I'll be happy with my body. Well, then I injured my back, started having two years of chronic back pain where I could hardly tie my shoes without you know, crying. Right. And then I'm like, oh, damn, that's just like the same, same thing, different, you know, like by a different name, right? right. It is still tying my self-worth to something external that can be ripped away from me yes. in a heartbeat, you know, yes. and my identity, right? That's who, that's who I thought I was as like, and that's who I thought after, um, again, started having chronic back pain, lost my dad unexpectedly, left a six-year relationship, moved home with my mom, you know, felt like a complete failure at, you know, 28 and I gained some weight. And I remember I started getting negative comments on my YouTube channel. I started having um, women in my community tell other women not to come to my gym because they might look like me. I had a male presenter who we invited to speak at a conference stand in my gym and make fun of my body to my staff. Oh Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And here's the wild thing, right? Like that should never happen to anyone. And I was five, almost 5'11", 185 three pounds or whatever. You know what I mean? The right. thing is it's like, it's a, like, I still really kind of fit the mold of like what a strong, you know, what the conventionally strong fit healthy body looks like. Right. And, but I was, I would, it would just like ripped me apart. And I was like, man, am I even a good coach? You know, like I started right. like questioning my, like, I can't move, you know, I can't lift. I can hardly demonstrate exercises. I've gained this weight back. Like, you know, and I really just let it rock my world. And again, my identity started having all this imposter syndrome. I can't help myself. How can I help my clients and stuff? And right. so it has really been a long road back to healing and understanding that, um, that I am a great coach and that I do have a ton of experience and I know how to help people. And, you know, and I'm really good at what I do and that my body doesn't, you know, people say your body's your business card, right? Like certainly I think coaches should engage in, you know, in healthful habits and, you know, and have a healthy lifestyle. But I think that for a lot of coaches, we feel that kind of imposter syndrome or that like, who am I to, you know, to be a coach or to help other people when we go through those kind of life transitions. And so it feels really good to be out the other side, to not have my self-worth tied to all of that stuff and to really um, have confidence in my abilities and also the humility to know that like, Hey, there's like, I've been in this 18 years and I'm just scratching the surface of what there is to know. There's so, you know, so much to know in our in our industry, which I think today we're going to talk about something that a lot of coaches um, are not well-versed in that I can't wait to educate on. But yeah, it, yes. it feels good to 18 years in to, to kind of be on the other side of that. I love it. I love it. Well, let's actually talk about that because, you know, this is such a thing, you know, when you talk about like pregnancy and being postpartum and all of that, like that's not something we get educated on in school, right? Like when I take an XI class, I'm taking body comps, I'm learning how to do blood pressures and, you know, people riding exercise bike fitness testing, right? But I know you and Girls Gone Strong both talk a ton about pre and postpartum health. So let's just start there. Why is that such a big emphasis in your work? Yes. And thank you for calling that out, for talking about the traditional like exercise science class or biomechanics class, or even anatomy and physiology class, right? That you're taking or if all of the other certifications out there, right? There's like a paragraph about like, keep her heart rate under 140 and maybe she shouldn't lie on her back, you know? And it's like, (laughs) oh my man, like we wrote a 500 page textbook on it and we had to cut a lot of stuff out. I'll just say that. Like that's how much (laughs) there is to know about this topic. And the reason that I'm so passionate about it is actually because go back about seven or eight years when Girls Gone Strong was releasing our first kind of general strength training program to the world. I got an email from a guy some of you may know his name's Dr. John Berardi. And mm-hmm. he was reaching out to me saying like, good job. I saw that you did this product. It looks awesome. I really want my wife to do this after she gives birth to our third child. I'd love for her to like use this to kind of return back to exercise. And I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. Okay. I'm like, I don't want to wait until she gives birth. Like I want to, I want her to start doing it now. Right. So let me figure out what the modifications are that might have to be made to this program for her to do it. And my I started diving in. I mean, at this point, I was like nine or 10 years into my career, had been obviously hanging out with some of the best, you know, strength coaches and physical therapists and, you know, performance specialists and stuff in the world. And I didn't know anything about working with pregnant and postpartum women. And I started researching and reading all the stuff that I needed to know. And I started getting real mad because (laughs) I'm like, why is no one talking about this? 85% of women in the U.S. will have a baby at some point in their life. 
And once they do, they are technically postpartum forever. And the important thing to note is that that doesn't mean they're fragile, doesn't mean they can't get back to intense exercise, doesn't mean they can't even surpass what they were doing prior to being pregnant, if that's one of their goals. Um, but what it does mean is that anatomically and physiologically, their body has been through some unique changes and those have to be considered, right? My partner ruptured his patella tendon in 2016, had surgery. He's never going to go back to be pre-patella tendon rupture. You know right, what I mean? It's, right. just, it's not a thing. He's been through it. And so it doesn't mean he can't get back to, you know, running fast and jumping high and squatting or whatever his goals are, but it just means that there's, there are some considerations to keep in mind. And the same thing is true with pregnant postpartum women. So I started really like digging into it. So we know 85% of women will have a baby at some point in their life. Once they do their postpartum forever. So if you're working with women, you're working with postpartum women, whether or not, you know, they just had their baby. And the other thing is that 67 to 75% of people who hire a coach or trainer are women. So if you're, again, if you are in this field, unless you are specializing in working with like young male bodybuilders or whatever the thing is, like right. you're gonna be, you're go going to be working with these women. And there are things that you have to know that their bodies have been through to, in order to understand how to coach them really well. So I'm gonna give you a couple of stats that blew my mind when I first started looking into them. So. Number one, 48 to 67% of women leak urine by week 30 of pregnancy. That means somewhere between half and two thirds of women who are pregnant are leaking urine during exercise. 35-ish um, percent of women, um, and I'll give you some context for this in a second, are having painful sex in the 12 months postpartum, right? So one in three women, and I know as a coach, we're probably not talking to our clients about the sex that they're having, right? right. However, it's important to keep in mind that that can be a sign of pelvic floor dysfunction and it's impacting the way your client feels about her body, the way she feels about her worth, maybe her you know, intimacy with her partner. Like it's just impacting the way that she feels about herself and her body. Sure. And here's the big one, the one that makes me real mad. Um, up to 19% of women will have surgery for pelvic organ prolapse or incontinence by the time they're 85. That's wow. one in five women and 30% have to have multiple surgeries. So for people who aren't familiar with pelvic organ prolapse, it's when one or more of the pelvic organs are starting to kind of slump or descend towards the exit of the vagina. In some women, the pelvic organs actually descend out of the vagina. So literally oh one in gosh. five women. Yeah. And, and it's way more common than you would think. And well, I'm it's, sure it's not yeah. something most people talk about, right? Right. Cause there's so much shame associated yeah. with it. Right. So there's a lot of shame associated with it. They don't want to talk about it. They're embarrassed. And again, this gets back to like how they're feeling about themselves and their bodies. So women are less likely to be active when they have it. Like there's, there's so many things about their lives that it's impacting, right? And here's the thing is that oftentimes pelvic organ prolapse can be um, you know, mitigated or treated with pelvic health physical therapy. But people, when you don't know about that, when you as a coach don't know that, hey, like if your client's having these signs and symptoms, like you can recommend that you can refer them to go see someone or there are things that you can do while they're pregnant that might decrease the likelihood or the severity of the pelvic organ prolapse. It's, it's again, there's not a lot of research in this field. And right. so it's, we don't, we can't say definitively like this makes prolapse worse, right? Or this makes diastasis recti worse, but we can use common sense and say, Hey, Maybe we should be reducing, you know, the high impact exercise that they're doing during pregnancy, or maybe if they're having these signs and symptoms, we should be modifying their exercise in this particular way. They might be creating too much intra-abdominal pressure, which is pushing down and bearing down on their pelvic floor, right? There are things that we can do. So when I started learning these stats and I started realizing like, no one knows about this stuff, right? There's this small little contingent of like pelvic health physical therapists and, you know, some like pre and postnatal experts, but it's always been considered a niche. But then when you learn that one in five women are going to have surgery for this at some point in their life and that it's massively impacting their activity levels and their body image and, you know, maybe even whether or not bend down and pick up their grandkids, right? Because yeah. they don't feel strong and capable enough to do that. You're like, ah, this is impacting or they're not going on vacations or family trips because they don't want to have to map out their bathroom schedule, right? In another country, like yeah, literally oh it's gosh. impacting every area of their life. And so I, that's why I get so, that's why I get so fired up about this topic is it impacts so many women. It's so important. Coaches have such a um, 
valuable role. I mean, we see our clients often, or at least talk to them one, two, three, you know, times a week, whereas they see their OBGYN maybe once a year, or, you know, like they see someone else, or maybe they don't even go to a PT, right. Or go to a physio. And so I think that we are on the front lines of these really critical conversations with our clients. And while a lot of what happens during pregnancy and postpartum is outside the scope of a coach, um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't know about it so that we can bridge that gap between that woman and whoever we're going to refer her to in her referral network. And there are just so many things that we can do, I think, to help women feel strong and capable, to help decrease the severity and likelihood of them developing these types of like, you know, pelvic health issues, to you know, help them improve their relationship with their body, to make the proper referral so that they can get the, the diagnosis and treatment that they need early on, um, so that they can live a long, you know, healthy, active life. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So maybe along those same lines, what are some of the biggest misconceptions or myths you see in training women who are pregnant? Because again, there's not a playbook in the, you know, the college curriculum at Ball State. Maybe there is now, but you know, way back in the nineties, there was not, it wasn't, this is what you should do with a woman when she's pregnant. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yep. So two biggest myths, and you've probably heard both of these. Number one, you can keep doing whatever you were doing before you got pregnant. And number two, you can't start anything new in pregnancy. And neither of those are correct. So number one, you can keep doing whatever you were doing. That's not exactly true. So a couple of things are contraindicated during pregnancy. One is high intensity interval training. So the maximum intensity of effort that a woman should be exercising at during pregnancy is about an 8.5 out of 10. So be considered big, vigorous intensity. Um, and that's only if she was doing, if she was doing that prior to pregnancy, if she was not exercising intensely prior to pregnancy, the highest intensity of effort she should be exercising at is about a seven. Okay. Um, so kind of right on the verge, just, just above moderate kind of on the verge of, of getting into vigorous, no, uh, Valsalva maneuver, which it, it can spike the blood pressure a little bit too high. There, there's some debate about this, but ultimately it can spike the blood pressure too high. It, the whole point is to increase intra-abdominal pressure, which is like, again, there's already so much downward pressure on the pelvic floor during pregnancy. Right. Anyway, number three, you typically use that when you're trying to lift as heavy as possible, which is not, you know, shouldn't necessarily be done in pregnancy anyway. So it's kind of like, right. what's the point? Um, obviously no weight belts, no, I know it's going to come as a huge shock, no horseback riding, scuba diving, contact sports, boxing, rugby, you know, all that kind <laughs> of stuff. Uh, <laughs> huge shock, right? Right. And, uh, and no things done at like really high temperatures. So like the hot yoga, hot Pilates, things like that. Um, exercising at altitude, but ultimately like lifting during pregnancy has a lot of some, the good news is lifting during pregnancy has a lot of similarities to lifting outside of pregnancy. So progressive overload is still important. You can squat, you can deadlift, you can push, you can pull, you can lunge, you can carry, you can do all those things. There are just certain considerations. Oh, barbell Olympic lifting also, um, because of the risk of fetal trauma as the bar passes the midsection. Oh yeah. So that is kind of only okay in trimester one for women who are super experienced as long as their belly hasn't started to protrude. So um, if any of those factors, if they're new to it, if their belly started to protrude, if they're past trimester one, contraindicated, because if they change their bar path too, then they are risking injury for themselves. So they don't change their bar path, they're risking fetal trauma. If they do change their bar path, they're risking injuring themselves. Um, but again, doesn't mean you can't still, you know, do push press or overhead press or, you know, a, you can still, again, squat, deadlift, things like that. But it's it's the cleans and the snatches where the barbell's passing the midsection. You can still yeah. do some of that kind of explosive stuff with kettlebells for a lot of women. Yep. Um, but those are kind of the don'ts, right? But again, there are so many do's that you can do. There are just things that you have to keep in mind. So when um, if a woman is experiencing leaking, uh, leaking of urine, if she's experiencing heaviness or downward pressure in her pelvic floor, if she's um, feel, feeling like something's maybe falling out or just doesn't kind of feel right, um, if she's experiencing a lot of doming or bulging along the midline. So one of the things that happens during pregnancy is a phenomenon called diastasis recti. So separation of the rectus abdominis muscles to make room for the baby. It's a you know, there's hundred percent of women have it, but I think week 35 of pregnancy. So it's not really something that can be prevented. Um, not something to be worried about per se, because it is, it is normal and natural and it's happening, you know, happening for a reason. And it's, um, it can certainly heal post-pregnancy, but 
we don't know what makes it worse, but it would make sense to think that something that's creating a lot more pressure, if you're seeing that doming or bulging, it's kind of like that's the weak link in the like the canister or of the trunk or the core, right? It's like, right. that's where it's protruding out. So it's like, we don't know that that makes it worse, but we're kind of like, ah, uh, let's, if you can't really kind of control that pressure more evenly, then let's maybe back down that exercise a little bit. And that's the thing. If a woman's leaking, having heaviness, having that bulging, doesn't mean she can't do the exercise that she was doing. Let's say she was goblet squatting. You can reduce the load of the goblet squat. You can reduce the sets and reps. So maybe she's not as fatigued or you can increase her rest period a little bit. You can change the position of the load. Maybe she does better with the kettlebell, you know, on one side versus in the middle. You right. can change her stance a little bit. You can change her breathing strategy. So it doesn't mean she can't do those exercises. It's just like, again, principles of, of strength and conditioning. You just back it down a little bit, make it a little bit easier and see if she can do the thing without the symptom. And so those are kind of the key like don'ts in pregnancy. There's a lot of uh, conversation about whether women should lie on their back during pregnancy because the weight of the baby can press on the vena cava and decrease blood flow. The decrease changes by only about 50% when she's exercising on her back. So it's actually safer for her to exercise on her back than it is for her to just lie on her back. But at the same time, women lie on their back during pregnancy all the time. They roll over and sleep on their back. Right. They go to exams on their back. So it's kind of like, mm, as long as she's not having dizziness, tingling in her legs, numbness, lightheadedness, she's probably okay on her back for like 60-ish seconds to perform an exercise. But if you're nervous about that or she's nervous about that, you just alleviate that by lifting her head at about her head and shoulders at about 15% incline and that takes care of it. So, but other than that, like, if you're paying attention to, you know, the symptoms that I mentioned, paying attention to the doming and the bulging and the heaviness and, and, you know, you're not Olympic lifting, you're not scuba diving, you're not boxing. Like there's a lot of stuff that women can do in pregnancy. We like to say pregnant women are neither fragile nor bulletproof. Those are, they can do a lot of stuff. And then when it comes to, you're not, you can't start anything new in pregnancy. As long as a woman's cleared by her doctor, doesn't have any absolute or relative contraindications, um, then she can actually start an exercise program in pregnancy. It's actually encouraged by all the major governing bodies. The only caveats are she needs to start at a low intensity. So, you know, maybe a three out of 10 on an effort scale, and then only work her way up to a moderate level of intensity, which would be about a six out of 10. So, but other than that, she can lift, she can do cardio, all that kind of stuff. Well, and here's the great thing about hearing that is that's where most people should start when they're starting anyways, right? <laughs> exactly. It's like when you bring somebody in, it's like, oh, you're a hundred pounds overweight. Perfect. Let me just smash you with this airdyne for the next 20 minutes, you know, versus right. just being smart and ramping somebody up. Well, that's very cool. And the, the thing that I was interested in too, is this whole lying on the back thing, because again, I'm just thinking about body shapes. And again, obviously my wife has gone through two pregnancies just there gets so much compression on the backside and everything gets pushed forward, as you alluded to, forward and down, right? Pelvic floor, abs. So a lot of times putting somebody on their back, at least for a short period of time, kind of allows everything to decompress. But I wasn't familiar with that fact of it could cause issues if you do it for too long. So very Yeah, I mean, that's the, the research is like short bouts, but they don't clearly define short bouts. Sure. You know what I mean? And, sure. and again, like there's a lot of some people say 16 weeks, some people say 28, you know, there's like all this kind of different conflicting stuff. So we kind of looked at all the research and then the practical component of like women probably roll over on their backs in bed all the time when they're <laughs> right. pregnant. Um, and, you know, just kind of like brought it together and said, OK, cool. So they can like, you know, they can likely exercise on their back short bouts, about 60 seconds, as long as they're not having these symptoms. If they are having those symptoms, you know, then just elevate their head, shoulders by about 15%. Okay, cool. Okay, so one, uh, the woman, that sounds really bad. No, the woman. <laughs> the woman goes through pregnancy. Somebody goes yeah. through pregnancy, right? And if they were just starting, you know, they started slow and easy, they built up. You know, if they were maybe a little bit more trained, they backed off a little bit, breathed through their reps, lowered the intensity. They did all the right things, right? They give birth. They've got this beautiful, healthy baby. Now on the backside, they are postpartum, right? So maybe along those lines, what are some of the biggest myths and misconceptions you see on that side of the equation? Yes. I want to dive into that. I did just remember one other thing about pregnancy though, that's yeah. probably super rel relevant to folks listening is previously they talked, the, the restriction was a woman shouldn't let her heart rate exceed 140 beats per minute. Right. That is actually not correct. 
and there's kind of two different ways to look at this, right? So the heart rate is going to be naturally elevated in pregnancy. So she's got increased blood flow. She's got, you know, her, you know, her body weight is going up. Like she's, yeah. you know, things are going to feel harder. Sure. Um, so for kind of your general population person, if they just go by the heart rate, that could happen when they're doing gentle walking, right? And so sure. it, it can falsely indicate that they're working harder than they really are. So they recommend um, like a perceived effort or like an RPE for like general population. So again, staying in that, like below that, you know, seven to eight and a half, if you yep exercised vigorously prior to pregnancy, staying in that six or below if you didn't exercise prior to pregnancy. Otherwise, you will, if you stop at 140, you're going to stop without really pushing yourself very hard for a lot of women. There, there's a just can be a big discrepancy between like their rate of what their actual perceived effort or exertion is and like what their heart rate is, like by like 42 beats per minute or something bananas like that. Right. On the other hand, elite athletes actually should use a heart rate monitor because they are so used to pushing themselves mm. that they could be at that seven or eight and a half and their heart rate could be at like 190, 200, you know what I mean? And so, so they are so used to pushing themselves that that underestimation, that discrepancy between heart rate and RPE can actually cause them to push themselves way too hard. So where the like general population person, if they capped their heart rate at 140, like they don't recommend heart rate monitors because if they capped their heart rate at 140, then they wouldn't work out hard enough. Elite athletes, they do recommend using a heart rate monitor because they can push themselves so hard and they recommend not letting their heart rate go above somewhere between 85 and 90% of their max. Okay. So, huh. yeah. And then, then when it comes to like lifting heavy in pregnancy, most of the like major governing bodies are like, stay in the 12 to 15 rep range, you know, and we're kind of like, Oh, you can actually go, you know, you can go right. heavier, a little, a little heavier and harder than that. We typically recommend no more than like, no, not going any heavier than like this, like six reps. Yep. Um, and when you're in that rep range, we typically rep recommend leaving a few reps in the tank. So somewhere like three ish reps in the tank, right? Really advanced lifters and try one might be a little bit controversial for some folks, but we feel comfortable with them lifting in the three to five rep range, as long as they are keeping three to four reps in the tank. So they'd be gotcha. using like their eight, their eight rep max right. for, you know what I mean? Or their six or seven yeah. rep max for, you know, so, so again, it's, it's heavy ish, you know, it's no, yeah. but it's no more than 80 to 85% of their one rep max and they're keeping multiple reps in the tank. So, um, those are kind of some other little lifting considerations for people who are more elite or advanced. Yeah. Well, like you said, when you're hedging your bet like that, they don't have to use a Valsalva maneuver to stabilize under that load. Right. Exactly. So. I mean, they can still kind of breathe through it. They're still pushing a little bit of weight and they're getting that benefit. But at the same time, it's not like bearing down as hard as possible, trying to grind out a heavy set of three, right? Yep, exactly. So if you can deadlift 200 pounds, right, for, for one, you can probably do 160 for about eight. So if you're doing that for like four to five, like you're probably fine. Right, right. Okay. No, that makes sense. Now Somebody's you... got to bring the meathead to the world of pregnancy and that, postpartum. That's right. I like it. I like it. So now on the back end, what changes? Getting yeah. back in the game, I'm assuming you don't go back in the gym and try your three rep max the first day you're in the gym, right? You'd be surprised. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, so, I've, I've owned a gym for 13 years now. I don't know if I would be, but nothing really surprises you anymore. So yes, the issue is people are way have been way too cautious during pregnancy. You know, they're like yoga and walking and stretching, right? Like, which are all fine during pregnancy, right. but like that's not the max that you should necessarily be doing. And then they're, they are uh, not cautious enough in the postpartum period. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the frustrating thing is a lot of that is because so much focus is on the baby, right? Instead yes. of the woman, they're like, don't hurt the baby. You know what I mean? But it's like once, once baby's out, it's like, she's fine. She can do whatever, right? right. Which is like, brings me to another infuriating rant that I won't go on, but that it is not standard practice to refer women to pelvic health physical therapy, even after they've had a C-section. So literally- major abdominal surgery and they yes. literally sew you up send you home to take care of a baby no less and say like yeah you can just do six weeks you know superficial like tissues healed like you can just return to whatever you want which is again so infuriating my partner had that major knee surgery and there was just a, there was a very slow controlled progressive return to exercise that was like all mapped out from day you know from the yeah. get-go it's like okay at this many weeks you're doing this and at this many weeks you're doing it and and the fact that that, that has not yet existed until 
you know, Girls Gone Strong's created our resources and our certifications and our timeline for this is just egregious, um, especially with all of the other not just the, I mean, again, C-section delivery, typically a little bit harder on women than, in terms of recovery than a vaginal delivery. But I mean, there can be a lot of birth trauma. There can be, you know, severe tearing and stuff that happens with vaginal delivery. There can be forceps. There can be all these other things that happen. Again, not to mention that a lot of women are have post-baby blues and postpartum depression and, you know, identity shift and exhaustion and sleep deprivation right. and, you know, I mean, again, you've got two, you've got two kiddos, you know, like <laughs> yeah. you, you have an idea of what that's like. And so um, the fact that there's no like really specific, slow, controlled, progressive return to exercise, or there wasn't until we created one is really infuriating. So the way that we look at it, we break it down into kind of three phases. And I think of it like, um, like if you kind of map the three phases out on the spectrum, they're going to move out. They're going to like that timeline is going to get pushed out if she has complicated delivery, if she had a complicated birth, C-section, um, you know, some type of postpartum depression, she's not sleeping. Like, like our timeline is like, okay, cool. So you had, you know, a, a uncomplicated birth, you know, baby's healthy, mom's feeling good. She wants to return to exercise. Like this is kind of the, the quote unquote, if everything's going perfectly, here's what your timeline might look like. And then you can't speed it up, right? You can't speed right. up tissue healing. You can't speed up like adaptation, but you might have to push it out a little bit. So say she had a C-section and, you know, she's just not kind of feeling up to it. Let's say she, you know, was really experiencing a lot of pelvic floor dysfunction during pregnancy, or she had, you know, again, some type of birth trauma, some like, you know, major tearing or whatever that might get pushed out a little bit. So the kind of general time frame, if she's feeling good, she's feeling healthy, she wants to return to exercise, the first six weeks are rehab and recovery. So this is where she's going to be focusing primarily on breathing. She's going to be focusing on um, gentle walking, and she's going to be focusing on body weight movements that are no more strenuous than the activities of daily living. And so it's re again, really egregious to say like, don't do anything for six weeks. And at six weeks, you can do whatever you want. Like, right. that's not how bodies work. That's not how progression works, right? Like you can't just do nothing and then throw someone into it. She's already squatting and lunging and carrying and doing all those things when she's holding her baby, picking up the wash, going up the stairs, using the toilet, like all that kind of stuff. So, so to be able to help her slowly return to those movements and get, you know, regain some strength in a controlled environment is going to be really important. So first two weeks, we generally recommend walking 10 minutes at a time, like maybe 10 minutes, right. you know, again, there's like resting as much as possible is going to be really important. Um, so like walking and breathing weeks, two to six, you can start gently doing some glute bridges, some wall slides, some body weight squats, some, you know, just really gentle, like some half kneeling hip flexor stretch, you know, cat, cow, bird, dog, like just the really gentle kind of body weight stuff. And then between week six and 18, so it's first six weeks, six and 18, like so a 12 week period, that's what we call the return to exercise phase. So for most women, if she's feeling pretty good, she can start gently returning to, to light exercise. There are no magic like set and rep periods or anything like that, but we're like, oh, you know, two to three sets of eight to 10 reps. Like that's a pretty good, well, you know, maybe four to six exercises, like relatively low volume, like, you know, keeping it kind of light, keeping some reps in the tank, you know, not pushing her too hard. Um, and then kind of in that next like four to six week period, progressing her to maybe, okay, you know, two to three sets of, you know, 10 to 12 or whatever. Again, you're just using the principles of strength and conditioning to slowly progress her back to a little bit heavier, a little bit more volume, maybe a little bit more complex exercises, right? Maybe you're starting with body weight squats then you're progressing her to goblet squats or something like that. And then between weeks 18 and 42, that's the phase where she can like really start to, again, that's, that's 24 week period. So there's right, a lot of time sure. there, you know, she's sure. not jumping back in at 18 weeks, but she can really start to progress. So by week 42, if everything's gone well, she's feeling good. She's following her program. You know, she's not having... Um, you know, a lot of symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction at week 42, we're like, okay, cool. She can, she can start to, you know, start pushing it in the gym, start returning to some more, you know, heavy and intense stuff. Um, we recommend waiting until about week 18 to start running again. And again, slowly progress back into running, you know, so maybe right. you're starting with like 10 to 15 seconds of jogging and then, you know, 45 to 60 seconds of walking, or she's, you know, maybe doing some stuff where she's kind of hopping on one foot a little bit, or she's doing some, you know, marching or whatever the thing is just to, again, slowly 
maturely progress her back into more high impact um, exercise and activity. And around that 18 week mark, you know, maybe you can start playing around with some barbell stuff. Maybe she can start, you know, barbell um, front squatting or back squatting or whatever. But again, light and easy, you know, a little bit lower volume. And then by week 42, again, you just, you, you just write a smart strength and conditioning program right. to help her, help her progress back from week 18 to week 42, while now taking into account the fact that she has higher risk of pelvic floor dysfunction. You want to be paying attention to how her diastasis recti is healing. So diastasis, like we talked about, separation of the rectus abdominis muscles during pregnancy, they previously categorized healing as the closing of the gap or the approximation of the rectus abdominis muscles. So it's like, oh, there's no more gap, it's healed. But, you know, or the gap is less than two finger breaths apart. Right. But they did not necessarily find that that closing of the gap was correlated with function. So a lot of women would have their kind of diastasis recti would quote unquote heal, but they wouldn't be able to create tension in their linea alba. And so it's like, you, you know, you'd be testing for diastasis recti and your fingers would just go straight down into the, into their belly. Right. Because they just weren't able to kind of create that, that tension. So now kind of the gold standard of healing is tautness and tension in the linea alba and being able to generate that tension but that's, that's kind of hard to measure, right? Like it's easy to measure finger breaths. It's hard to be like, okay, how much should this push back when I push in on it? You know, so as a coach, that's just going to require getting some reps under your belt of assessing diastasis recti. Um, That's going to depend on where you live and what the laws are in terms of whether you're able to put your hands on your clients and like what your clients are most comfortable with. But most, most coaches are able to assess diastasis recti. You are not diagnosing or treating you're just simply assessing it to kind of measure and see how, like, is this wider than two or three finger breaths? And is there any tent, you know, are my fingers just going straight down? Like, if so, it's probably best for her to work with a pelvic health physical therapist. We recommend all women see a pelvic health physical therapist, both during right. pregnancy and after, just because it makes sense. And it's, it's smart. And they're the ones who can really assess exactly what's going on. There's so much going on internally that we can't see as coaches. We think it's important. So we always recommend women do that, but especially if they're not able to, if they have like a really wide diastasis and, or they're not able to generate good tension or tautness in their linea alba when you're assessing it, we definitely recommend working with, with a pelvic health physio. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of things I need to mention here. Number one, couldn't agree with you more about seeing a pelvic floor specialist. This is actually like in America, I we have this tendency, this arrogance to think that we just know all of the things and we're smarter than the rest of the world. But in Europe, this is like legitimately part of the healthcare system. You have a child, you go to PT afterwards. There's like a rehabilitation process. It's almost unheard of here. So the fact that you have to come on here and explain this is like going to be mind blowing to some people, but in Mm -hmm. other parts of the world, this is just how they do things. So that's really important. The second thing that I think is super important and this is this is an overarching principle of strength and conditioning, personal training that gets pushed aside far too often is this idea of outcome-based treatment versus time-based. So like you alluded to, well, you know, maybe it's six to 12 weeks when they start, but if somebody has a C-section, the rules are different, right? So too often we're focused on, well, I've wrote this beautiful four-week program. So after the four-week program's done, we go to the next four-week program versus, look, this person hasn't mastered any of that. If it's based on an outcome, it might take less, it might take more. And so I think that's something that we all need to be focusing on, whether we're talking postpartum, return to play, it's about the outcome. And if you haven't achieved the outcome, you don't move forward until you do. Yeah, so true. And, you know, because when I first got into it, I was like, why is there no timeline for this? And they're like, well, timelines aren't really helpful because, you know, women are different. I'm like, not timelines is really unhelpful. Like no timeline is the most unhelpful. Shooting from the hip is never a good strategy when it comes to taking care of somebody's body. No. And so I, yeah, again, I got super, super frustrated because I'm always thinking about, okay, practically, how can we apply this? Like, how is this actually going to work in the real world? And it's like, cool, we can give people a timeline and then just give them all the caveats or all of the you know, considerations to keep in mind so that they can be on the lookout for them and they can adjust the timeline accordingly. And so I feel um, I'm really excited that we've been able to map that out and do that. I've seen, you know, so many, we map it out really clearly in our certification. And it's really fun because I've seen 
people who've taken our certification who've now who now are starting to kind of use that timeline and kind of make that the gold yeah. standard, which is you know really exciting and cool to see that kind of kind of disperse amongst the industry, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it's it's uh, it's super important. It's like man, women have just not been getting the coaching and care that they deserve for a really long time. They think so much of this stuff is normal. You ask a woman if she, you know, if she ever leaks urine and she's like, no. And then you ask her, you're like, not even when you like run or dump or sneeze or laugh. She's like, well, of course I've had two kids. And it's like, okay, cool. You know, someone in my family recently, I was visiting with them and they started, they were talking about some pelvic health issues they were having. They were like, it just feels so heavy. And I was like, hmm. And so I asked them like, hey, have you, have you been to a, you know, pelvic health physio? And it turns out, they have pelvic organ prolapse and they had their kids 30 plus years ago and no one had ever talked to them about it, you know, and it was really, again, impacting their, their kind of self-worth, their, you know, body image, their activity levels. I mean, this person was walking five miles a day during the pandemic, like to get outside and, you know, get some movement. And then all of a sudden they cut back to like, you know, hardly being able to walk half a mile without having so many symptoms. And so now they're going to pelvic health physical therapy and they're having, you know, great success with it and it's being treated conservatively. You know, maybe they'll end up having to have something, you know, more invasive, some type of surgery or something done. But it's like, let's at least give it a shot, you know, with with conservative treatment first and see what can be done. And this person's feeling super empowered and, you know, more in control of their body and just, you know, hopeful, hopeful freaking hopeful, man. Anybody who's ever had like, I've had two years of chronic back pain Again, boyfriend had that knee thing. Like anybody who's ever been through a major kind of physical, just change in the way that their body feels or functions like, man, that loss of hope is just so devastating. So to to think I'm never going to get back to that, like my body's never going to be the same to, to be able to instill hope in women that, that they can get back to stuff that they love. It's just so powerful. That's awesome. Okay. So I've got one more question before we kind of start wrapping this up here. And you and I, before the show, we're talking about, you know, like there's certain topics that are harder to bring up with people, right? So the example I used with you is, you know, with some of my female athletes, it can be hard to talk about weight, right? Because there's a certain stigma that, and look, this is a whole other topic, right? Like you and I maybe need to do a second show and talk about social media and body image and all that. That would be fun because I have thoughts there too. But like, those are hard things to talk about, right? Especially when as a coach, that could be negatively impacting their performance or their ability to move or their ability to do something. I mean, this is a whole nother topic. So Mm -hmm. how do you advise coaches start to have these conversations with people because it is important. It is relevant, but at the same time, how do you broach these topics without like putting somebody off or making them feel super awkward? I love that you asked this question because this is something, it's so funny. We noodled on this for a long time and then we came up with the best and simplest answer, which I feel like so many of the, like so many answers that we eventually come up with are like, why didn't we think of this earlier? Um, we put a section on our intake form where they can opt in to have those conversations with their coach. So mm-hmm. we put a little paragraph that says, Hey, here, there are a number of topics that, you know, could really, again, and you, you're going to modify it for, for the population that you're working with. There's a number of topics that could potentially, you know, impact your performance or your results or whatever. And these are conversations that I, as your coach, I'd really like to have with you. Please check the box. If you're comfortable talking about these with me. And it can be, you know, nutrition, body image, sleep, stress, you know, pelvic health, like incontinence, if you menopause, menstrual cycle, like you can list all of that stuff yeah. on there and let them opt into those conversations, right? That's because brilliant. That's really it, brilliant. right. It's like it's that. so it's so easy. It's like, oh man, it's like duh, they give you consent ahead of time. And then you don't have to be like, tell me about your menstrual cycle to like a 13 year old. It's like, she's like, why is this 40 year old dude asking me about my menstrual cycle? You know, creepster. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've right? done it. I fast, never going yeah, back. Exactly. And like, or, and again, the parents can have like, uh, maybe like there's a section for parents and kids, to, you know, whatever, opt into yes, together, however you want to sure. do it. We work, we work with adults, but yeah, just say, Hey, the, there are some things about this that could impact their ability to, you know, get results or perform or whatever, because you never know what's going to set someone off. Like yes. uh, my, my sister-in-law has struggled with insomnia for a long time. And like, she doesn't want to freaking talk about her sleep and she doesn't want some 
you know, like random coach to like, she's like, I listen, I work at a university. I have a PhD. I'm a researcher. I've done everything I can. Like I've done these sleep studies. Like, I don't want to hear so-and-so tell me to like set my alarm for 15 minutes earlier. And like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like light, light a lavender candle. She's like off, like, do not, like, right. do not come at me with that. Right. But you never know what's going to set someone off. Right. It could be their nutrition. It could be their weight. It could be their menstrual cycle. You know, it could like whatever. So having these like topics that are outside of like the normal, like everyday, like strength and conditioning coaching stuff and, and explaining to them how they might impact their goals. Right. Cause again, if they don't know how this conversation might help increase their results or lead to, you know, helping them reach their goals better then they might be less likely, like, oh, I don't really want to talk about this, but if you're like, Hey, this could, this could impact your ability to like you know, reach your particular goal or, you know, achieve this level of performance or whatever. Then they're like, oh, okay, cool. Then I'll talk to you about it. So yes, you just give them a place to opt into the conversation on the intake form. And it's like, oh, okay, now, you know, and you say like, Hey, this can change at any time, you know, just let us know or whatever. Um, but then they've already said like, you don't have to have the awkward face-to-face conversation. They just have the opportunity to say yes or no. I'm cool with talking about this. I love that. That's awesome. Okay. Big question time. If you could alter the space-time continuum, and give young Molly Galbraith one piece of advice, what would it be? Ooh, I think probably the biggest, biggest thing for me would be your self-worth has nothing to do with the way that your body looks or what it can do. That was the thing that like really colored my journey. Like I was just constantly hustling for love and affection and worthiness and good enough. And do they like me? And it was so much of it was tied to the way that my body looked or eventually what it could do. And so I think knowing that would, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd actually change it because it has been contributed to so much right. of what my story is, but it's like, right. man, like if I could tell other, if I could impart that wisdom on other young girls, I think that's what I would do. Can I ask a follow-up to that then? Cause yeah. I feel like this would be super important. What did you do? Like, like, how did you get to that point? Because mm -hmm. I, I guarantee there are other people listening to this that have these same issues. And the worst case is we're, we have a litany of young people that are going to deal with these same issues probably 10 times more than we ever will because mm -hmm. of the devices we carry around and the social media and all that. So could you speak to that even just somewhat yes. briefly? I would love to. And then I would love, I actually have a little solution solution for that. I think could be super useful. So a Even couple better. of things, number one, it started, I started going to therapy in 2008 and therapy has been the most, I, I I'm like, man, I've hiked 10,000 miles. I've lifted, you know, weights 4,000 times. I've done this. I've done that. And the best thing I've ever done for myself is go to therapy. The best thing I've ever done for my health. Um, so that was super huge for me. And that is actually a huge part of what I talk about in the book, Strong Women Lift Each Other Up. So the first, the whole first half of the book is how to get right with yourself so that you can be a strong woman who lifts other women up. Because I see so many women who are like, the future is female and this girl can, and like they want to support it, but they're struggling so badly with their own body image, feelings of comparison, like comparing mm -hmm. themselves to other women jealousy, feeling like they're not good enough, you know, feeling like other women are their competition for whatever, like the smartest kids, the best body, the biggest home, the fanciest vacation, the, you know, whatever the thing is, like so many women are stuck feeling as though other women are their competition. So the whole first half of the book is about overcoming jealousy and comparison, overcoming scarcity mindset, overcoming body image issues. And there's a lot of, and, and, and it's so much of what I've learned in therapy. I've actually found out that a ton of therapists are recommending the book to their clients and patients because it's something that they can do at home. It's a, it is a workbook style book. So at the end yeah. of every chapter, there's a bunch of questions and stuff that you ask yourself and things that you fill out and, you know, like you're observing like, okay, when am I having these feelings of comparison? When am I engaging in negative self-talk about my body? Who am I around? What's happening? What media am I consuming? You know, so I'm literally walking people through how to do that and then walking them through how to retrain their brain, how to use cognitive behavioral therapy kind of tactics to start retraining their brain and changing their thought process. And I mean, you're literally cool. re, re, rewiring your brain. And then the whole second half of the book is like, okay, cool. Now that I like 
feel good about myself. I know other women aren't my competition. I'm not comparing myself to them. I actually want them to succeed. What are the actionable things that I can do to lift them up? So I think therapy, I will always, I, you know, my book is certainly not a substitute for therapy. I'm a huge fan and um, advocate for that. And I'm glad that it, that a lot of the stigma is being removed from that. Um, yep. Huge fan of that. We have a couple of free courses on Girls Gone Strong, both for women and professionals who work with women about body image. So either how to improve your own body image or um, how you can help clients improve their body image. So if people Google Girls Gone Strong body image course, those will pop up. Perfect. And then so those, those, are, those are some free options. And then um, for folks who like really want a workbook style, like hold your hand, walk you through it kind of thing. My book, Strong Women Lift Each Other Up, the whole first half of the book is about how to over, it talks about my story and how I overcame it and gives you actionable steps and tools. I didn't want people to get to the end of the book and be like, yay, this is so inspiring. What do I do? Right. You know what I mean? Like, yes. I just, I'm like, man, I'm a, I'm a strength and conditioning coach by trade, but I consider myself to be someone who helps women get from where they are now to where they want to be, yeah. right? Like I know how to walk them step-by-step. Step. I, I know the psychology behavior change I've, I, and I've been there myself, right? I've right. coached women through it and I've done it for almost two decades now. Like I know the questions to ask and the exercises to give you in and out of the gym, right? To help right. you get, get to where you want to be. And so that's really what this that that whole book is about is I saw so many women struggling with that and so many young girls. And so as we kind of, I think we talked about this before we started recording, like moms are the number one influence on the way daughters feel about their bodies and themselves and the number one influence on their relationship with food and exercise. And so I felt like, you know, working with women is my specialty. And so I'm like, man, if I can get this book in the hands of all these women who can then turn around and positively influence their daughters, it's like, so cool. Like we can just have such a massive, massive impact. And, and it's not just moms, right? Like I don't have children myself. I'm an auntie. I've got, you know, a niece and three nephews, and I'm just constantly trying to do what I can to, um, to positively influence them in the, in the areas of nutrition and exercise and body image and, you know, teachers and like coaches and, you know, again, coaches in the gym and then, you know, sport coaches. And, um, I just feel like we have such a, such a worth just such powerful role models, whether we know it or not. And so I, I love the idea of um, being able to give women the tools to kind of heal their relationship with their own body so that they can then in turn pass it on to the, to all the, you know, girls and boys who are paying attention. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's one of the the reasons I enjoy coaching the young kids in sports. Part of it is selfish. Obviously, I enjoy hanging out with my own kids and any time I can spend with them is great. But just trying to be a positive impact. Obviously, little, guy, little guys are fun, but especially with the young ladies, too, and like trying mm -hmm. to cultivate just this new generation of strong young women that enjoy sports, that take pride in their body versus, you know, just what they're getting pushed into with social media and phones and, you know, all of that stuff. So I love it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Last but not least, lightning round. So four fairly short questions. Your answer can be okay. as long or short as you like. All right. Okay. Number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach? For sure, creating the GGS Academy and creating the world's first and only sort of, it's like mind blowing. It's like, hold on. In 2017, we created the world's first and only certifications, 100% focused on women that are backed by research and comprehensive. Like, man, okay. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I can't believe that wasn't done before, before us, but 100% because that, you know, I've, I've, owned a gym. I've trained clients online and in person. I've done so many things, but being able to create this education. And again, it is not me. It is this amazing team of dozens of brilliant and, and giving brilliant female experts the platform to do yes. it. Yep. When I first got into it in 2004, man, there was T Nation and there, you know, there was Elite FTS and there, there was the figure athlete side of you oh, know, yeah. T Nation, which was still just mostly naked women, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> with sweat dripping down their washboard abs or whatever, which is cool if that's your jam. But like, if that's the only thing that you have access to, you know, and I would wait, like, like, I'd be like, oh, there'd be another article by Rachel Cosgrove or Lee Peel or, and I would just be like chomping at the bit to like learn from women. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and there were almost no places for women to share their expertise. So it's like the combination of being able to give all these incredible female experts a platform and then deliver this, this transform transformative education to professionals who are using it to enhance their career and enhance like women's lives. It's like, man, it doesn't get any better than that. That's awesome. 
I love it. Okay, number two, we already talked a little bit about the book, but what prompted you to go the old school? Like, it's a print book, right? Am I correct? It is a print book you with are, a traditional a publisher. You're a savage. A I don't know if they ha- could write a check big enough to make me do that anymore. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So the short answer is that I couldn't live with myself if I didn't write it. Nice. Literally. Like yeah. it was, I don't normally feel that way about work projects. Like, um, but I gave a speech in 2018 in Melbourne, Australia about strong women lift each other up. And it was like standing ovation. Like everyone just like came up to me afterwards. Like, where, where did that come from? Did you write this? You know, whatever. And it, it literally, the, the idea like was inside my body and it was like, bang, 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 bang. Like, I'm right. not going anywhere until you let me out. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. And Casey, my partner's like, we don't have time for this. And Mike, I couldn't sleep. I was yeah. losing sleep over it. And it's like, this has to be done. This thing has to live outside my body. So I didn't want to do, <laughs> I didn't want to <laughs> do it. I had to do it. Um, and so, and it, it has been by far the hardest thing that I've ever done. Um, it, I would say it is bordering on most rewarding. I think thus far the Academy and our certifications has had a bigger impact on the world. So I'll be really excited to see that the, the impact that the book can have, because I think it's certainly relevant to a much broader audience maybe than our certifications are, but yeah, it was, man, it was, it was not for the faint of heart after we rewrote it two or three times. Casey and I sat next to each other for 41 days, seven to 11 hours a day, revamping it again. Um, oh one of one of his superpowers with working with me and Girls Gone Strong is he's really good at the last five. He's good at starting a project and he's good at like the last the five to 10% making it better. Don't put him in the middle. Like he can't do it <laughs> in the middle, right? But, yes. but that last five to 10%, that's kind of where we were at. So literally 41 days, it was, it was brutal. I'll never, I'll never do that part of that again. But yeah, I'm super proud of what we created and confident that it can help a lot of people. That's awesome. Okay. Number three, how does it feel sharing a birthday with yours truly? Oh, it's the best, man. Right? It's so good. We never forget each other's birthdays. We never forget each other's birthday. I love being a July 20. I mean, I think, it's, it's like we share it and it's also the best birthday of the entire year, just in general. Like the fact yeah. that we were both born on the best day of the year, it's, you know, it's just so serendipitous. Yes. Yeah. Except I'm, how old are you now? How old did you oh turn my in gosh, my last I'm 40, birthday? I'm 43, Molly. I don't feel 40, 43. 30. So like, that's the good thing. And being around young people and I'm basically, I'm a kid at heart, so I don't feel 43, but there are days when I recognize I am definitely 43. Yeah. Yeah. I feel I turned 37. I love seeing that picture that uh, JB posted of you and him and Eric. Did you see that on Instagram? Yes. So good. And like Julia Anto and like all, yeah, I'm just like, Oh man, I know so many of those people. I know when people were like, Hey, just so you know, these people have been around for a little while. So yeah. When I, when I saw Eric, cause I don't think I talked to Eric in like, well, probably a year. I mean like texts and stuff, but not like sat down and talked and it's like, man, bro, we've been at this a little while now. You know, we are mm-hmm. not the new kids on the block anymore. That's for sure. So, okay. No. Last but not least, number four, what's next for Molly Galbraith and the Girls Gone Strong? Yeah. So it's, it is honestly um, the certifications and getting them in the hands of as many people as possible. We just feel like there's such a gap in knowledge for coaches and trainers. It's like so many women are hiring coaches and trainers. So many of them are having babies. So few of them know what to do and know yep. how to serve women well. And they want to serve women well. They sure. want to. It's not for lack of not caring. It's how do we actually get the information in the hands of those people who want to do a really good job. And so for us, it's just doubling down on that, continuing to provide as much free stuff as possible. Like 95% of the stuff that we provide is free. We have over a dozen free courses, over a thousand articles, you know, constantly posting stuff on social media. We've got three closed Facebook groups. We have one for health and fitness professionals that has 45,000 people in it, which, and yet is still the kindest, most helpful, most inclusive, warm, welcoming group on Facebook. Like I take a lot of pride in that, you know, it's been around for almost five years now. And like we, it is heavily moderated and like, you know, it's like you or you are nice and helpful or you are not in this group. Um, and so it's pretty, pretty cool. And you can just go be a fly on the wall or you can contribute, you know, and you can connect with people. And so 
yeah, we just, we're really passionate about access to information. You know, we understand there's financial issues for people. There's geographical, you know, advantages and disadvantages to being able to access information. So we try to do as much free stuff as possible so that women, you know, when I hear a story like I'm a pelvic health physio in Malaysia and, you know, like your stuff has helped me help my pregnant clients. It's like, man, that's just like, you can't beat that. We've got students in a hundred countries. So for us, it's just really continuing to to double down on this because we believe in what we've done. We don't have to constantly create new flashy things. It's like, no, this is, this is the stuff. This is what people need. And we think we can offer it better than, you know, better than has ever been offered before. And so for us, it's just really doubling down on that. And then of course, continuing to, to promote the book, but that's, that's a long, slow grind like anything else. Yep. Yep. That's awesome. Well, Molly, awesome catching up with you let's not take two years to do that again next time where can my listeners find out more about you and all the amazing work you're doing yes so girlsgonestrong.com is our website it's our hub they can find all the certifications there they can find the articles they can find the free courses we've got a brand new free course that just got released on sunday called strength training during pregnancy so if you're interested in strength training and pregnancy and the courses are totally free five days long audio, video, tons of bonus resources. Like you'll get that park you that I was like the, the oh, yeah. park you, the physical activity readiness questionnaire that I was talking about where, um, yeah, where you can actually like get one for the GGS version of it, give it to your client, things like that. So girlsgunstrong.com. If you're on social media, I'm most active on Instagram at the Molly Galbraith. And of course we're at the girls gun strong on Instagram as well. Perfect. Do a quick Google search of strong women, lift each other up. Molly Galbraith. Um, or if you pop over on Instagram, you'll be able to find it. Perfect. Well, I will make sure we get all of the links in there so they can find all of those things. But again, Molly, so great catching up with you today. Thanks for coming on. So good. And thank you, Mike, for being such a massive influence on me and the work that I do. Like you and Bill, seriously, like shaped so much of how I coach people. And yeah, it's just, I cannot overstate enough how much of an impact that you had on me and my coaching philosophy and career. So huge thanks to you for that. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Molly. Really hope you enjoyed it. It was a pleasure to get to catch up with her. It's been I don't know, maybe not a full year, but it's been a while since her and I have got to sit down and catch up. Amazing to see her doing such great work and just the amazing ladies that she has surrounded herself with, such great practitioners, and I really feel like she is filling a much-needed void in our industry. So if you enjoyed this week's episode, I have a small ask for you. Normally I ask you to subscribe, and if you're not already, please do that. But if you know a trainer or a coach or maybe a mom that is going through some of this right now and maybe their trainer isn't taking the best care of them please forward this episode onto them i feel like this is such critical information this isn't stuff they're teaching you in your xi three or four hundred level class it's not stuff they're teaching in a lot of the traditional strength and conditioning certs this is really important information and it's stuff that we need to have in the hands of more trainers more coaches and more end users So ultimately, we can take better care of these ladies, both during and after the child rearing process. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.